You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. In October 2016, Audio Interference hosted a panel discussion called Podcasters and Propagandists. We invited a range of individuals and organisations working with audio to come and discuss their work and to discuss the role of the podcast as a tool for political organising and community building. The panel consisted of Aaron Lakoff from Rebel Beat, Caitlin Preston, Tennessee Jane Watson from The Heart, Zahira Lee and Judy Golia from Flatbush and Maine, and Mark Winston Griffith from The Third Rail. Louise Barry chaired. Welcome everybody, welcome to our panelists. So we're gonna get started. Um, just, I'm gonna say, uh, first off, we have a lot of people on the panel, which is wonderful, um, but I'm gonna ask all of you to keep your answers to about three to five minutes when you're responding. Um, <laughs> just, you know, a little guideline. <laughs> so um, we invite you all here because you're all doing very different things um, with your work in terms of content, um, format, and, but you're all involved in some ways with movements or community building. So I'd like for each of you to just start by talking about uh, what motivated you to start your podcast. Start here. Okay. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I, I've been involved in community radio for about 15 years and I would say, yeah, I mean, it was very much like activism and what was going on in the world that brought me into community radio, but I never thought I would be doing anything really political, or maybe I, I never actually kind of realized that I'd be doing anything political, but um, when I when I first got really into radio, it was kind of like pre being able to find any song you want on YouTube. And uh, I was I was growing up in Toronto as a teenager and discovered this amazing punk rock radio show on, on CIUT, which is the University of Toronto radio station, and would like literally sit beside the radio every Monday night, like writing down the names of the songs and, and the hosts just brought this like incredible political analysis into it and 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 that was life-changing for me the show uh, mods and rockers uh, and then I moved back to Montreal around 2002 and then 2003 the war in Iraq started and you know I was like really perturbed by that and thinking oh my god like what can I do I have to be able to do something and I, I just happened to be at, at CKUT radio which is my radio station and the news director there at the time, uh, you know, I, I just I wanted to do like silly punk rock shows and and there was an anti-war protest happening. And she just like thrust um, a radio like a, a recorder in my hand and pushed me out the door. It was like, go record at this protest. And it was kind of like all downhill from there. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and then I guess like through my trajectory. Hello. Um, I had been, I'd been doing like a ska and reggae show for about 10 years. And then what kind of morphed into the podcast that I'm doing right now called The Rebel Beat is really, I guess, just thinking about the times we live in as being really urgent times, um, like particularly seeing what was going on in Ferguson 
after the killing of Mike Brown. Um, and it's funny too, right? Like, you know, like being in Canada, I think a lot of Canadians really pride themselves on the fact that like, oh, we're not like the U.S. Like shit is so crazy in the U.S., but um, things aren't as bad up here. And 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 that that's not true. Like that that's a, a myth that I, I think is really important to dispel is that, you know, obviously it's differences of scale, right? Like you guys are about 10 times our population, but you still have police killing people of color on, on a regular basis and problems of colonialism and, and ecocide. And I guess it was just like for me, like trying to reckon with all these problems and then going on the radio because I've been doing a weekly radio show for, you know, over a decade and just kind of thinking like I really want to be using the airwaves to be playing music that responds to that urgency. Um, and so that's how I came about doing the Rebel Beat. And basically it was like a weekly show where we would do interviews by we, I mean, I <laughs> would do interviews with uh, political artists. And I try to not approach it in like a really, I guess, kind of didactic way. So for me, it's forcing myself to think about political music as being, you know, not just what defines it being the lyrics being political, but, you know, that can be political in so many different ways. Um, and uh, I recently just had to drop down. It's, it's a monthly podcast now. Um, I just started grad school, so it's taken up a lot of time. Um, but I'm putting it out once a month, and, and that's much more manageable. And yeah, I'll pass the mic. Hi, I'm Caitlin, if you forgot. Um, <clears throat> so my show, amazingly, actually started at the same place that Aaron started at CKUT in Montreal. Um, it started out as a show called Audio Smut, and it was sort of like an anarchist collective of like queers and feminists um, making really uh, <laughs> like, um, what do you call it? Uh, what do you call it? Like, like raunchy, like, like, you know, yeah, like, like, um, extremely explicit sexual content, um, with the goal of sort of shifting the way that we, um, uh, the stories that we tell about our bodies and the stories that we tell about our sex and the stories that we tell about our hearts and our love and the way that we relate to each other in a physical and in a physical way and um, sort of creating a new mythology around sexuality and love that includes everyone. Um, and when I say everyone, I mean like the people who you never get to hear from in mainstream media. And um, pretty early on, like I realized that what I really wanted for the show was for it to have a part of the mainstream mouthpiece, um, which meant sort of like leaving the community radio sphere and trying as hard as we could to like get on public radio, <laughs> like get on the CBC at the time and then, or NPR or whatever. Um, and that was sort of like a huge goal for us was to try to get a to get on public radio proper with a capital P, and we um, we met with we met with a lot of hurdles in trying to do that um, as a show that sort of had an overt politic and also was a sexually explicit show, um, and we didn't really back down from that mission. Um, we became a podcast because. Um, we wanted our friends to listen to the show, and when we were on CKUT, like nobody, nobody 
half our friends didn't even have radios. Like they weren't going to be tuning. They weren't going to be tuning in at like the first Wednesday of every month at 6 p.m. Um, so we put it online so people could find it. And then um, when we were trying to beat down the door of public radio, um, podcasting became legitimate and uh, in the public radio sphere. And these podcast networks started to be built by people who sort of abandoned public radio because they were tired of the bureaucracy and they saw a funding model that could actually work. And we got picked up by a network called Radiotopia, which um, is, is very mainstream. Um, there aren't, there is not a lot of radical shit on that, on that network, that network, and we even had to change our name. Um, we changed it from Audio Smut to The Heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> enough said. Um, and we've been sort of, you know, like we've been trying to fight the fight from, from, from that, from that place. Uh, with varying degrees of success. Um, one great success that we had, one, one of the greatest successes that I consider that we had was working with Tennessee on a really important four-part four series called Silent Evidence. And I'm gonna pass the mic over to Tennessee now. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so I don't have my own podcast. I just got to guest star on The Heart. Um, and I was thinking, I was trying to think like, oh, did I choose podcasts, you know, with some intention. And um, I wish I could say that I did, but I didn't. I, I have a radio mother, Karen Michelle, and she matchmaked me with Caitlin. Um, that's basically how it happened. I had a lot of different ideas about where this story that I worked on might live. And Karen was like, Caitlin. Um, and so I just kind of went forth from there. Um, and I honestly... I'm, I don't know where I stand. Um, Could you tell us what? about Silent Evidence? Oh, yeah, you want to know what that is? Okay, so Silent Evidence is uh, a mini season and <laughs> on the heart, um, and it's four parts, and um, it's following me on a journey to um, break my own silence about um, being sexually abused as a kid, and it there was no audio because I didn't say anything like there really was no sound um, and so the challenge for me as a survivor in terms of healing and then also a, the creative challenge for me as someone who works in sound and expresses myself with sound was how to get this quiet heady experience out of my head um, and out into the world and so um, yeah, I, I started doing recordings on the sly and never really told anybody that I was working on this um, until, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I got really serious about it when I, when I talked to Caitlin. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pieces to it, but discovering the work of the heart and sort of knowing what the possibilities there were um, it was a huge moment. Like I, I decided to use the criminal justice system as a way to leverage holding my abuser accountable. And the same time that I decided to contact the police, I also wrote an email to Mitra and Caitlin. Um, and I was not going to move forward in, in this process with the criminal justice system without feeling like I had a safe place to tell my story and I'd done a lot of like more abstract art and um, I really needed allies to 
help tell a cohesive narrative that sort of made sense of everything that had happened to me that was didn't render me as a crazy confused person but was like this is what happened sort of indicting what had kept me silent and then figuring out a way to break through so um it was yeah it was a tremendous gift and um a really incredible process um that being said um i came into radio um, with a college radio show called Renegade Radio, which was all radical music. And I um, <laughs> have been really devoted to terrestrial broadcasting because you can build a transmitter. For It's so affordable to build a transmitter, and it is so affordable to access a radio. And I really firmly believe that those are important skills to maintain. And uh, I'd have to fact check this, which I'm really into. but. Um, I, just in terms of like broad brushstrokes, the demographics of people who listen to podcasts are still predominantly white men. It's an affluent population, and I'm hyper aware of the digital divide. And so while I think this is a really amazing realm, um, I'm still attached to um, you know, seeing radio as a tool that I can build it, you can tune me in. Um, so it's sort of... I don't have my own podcast. I probably won't have one anytime soon. Um, I think it's a really powerful, important medium, and I'm super interested in conversations that sort of are talking about access when it comes to podcasting and just making sure that we're not abandoning um, radio as a, as a radical tool as well, and I, I want to see them work together. So, yes. Okay. Um, so... Uh how we came into Flatbush in Maine, I think Julie will tell half the story. I'll tell the other half of the story. I'll tell whatever you don't Okay. Like. <laughs> um, so for people who aren't familiar, Brooklyn Historical Society is a 153-year-old um, historical archive, library, uh, exhibition center, educational center, urban history center, um, and, uh, I, and has, I think, the longest standing oral history program in Brooklyn. So um, some of our oral histories, um, earliest collections date back to the 70s with narrators who were born in the 19th century. Um, so pretty cool job to have as this oral historian. And, and working with audio, of course, um, I was interested in thinking of ways to extend people's access to the oral histories that we have. And of course, you can come into the library and listen to them. We're working on making more of them accessible online. Um, but um, you know, I, I thought of a podcast. And I think the earliest iterations of our podcast before I started was just like an oral history interview. And there are a lot of places that do oral history podcasts where you, you just li it's just like the whole interview of someone without much commentary or anything. And it's kind of difficult uh, to really listen to or get a handle on or know what, you, what you're supposed to do with this, right? So um, that's how we came to the, the idea of doing a podcast and um, working with the staff at um, Brooklyn Historical Society, we kind of like began a brainstorm session of, of what, like I knew what I wanted the podcast to accomplish in terms of oral history. Um, I wanted to have kind of model what people do with oral histories, right? Like 
you you do the oral history, but then what is it? What do you, what do you do with it? Like, how do you listen to an oral history? How do you use an oral history for information, for illumination, for prov you know for provocation? So um, it would mean that at least that portion that portion of the podcast that we deal with the oral history, we wouldn't play the whole thing. We would curate clips and respond to them, like you know, and demonstrate what engaged listening you know, would, would seem like. And then of course make the whole thing available and show notes and that kind of thing. So that was, that was my angle into um, podcasting. Um, and broadly speaking, you know, P I, I think we also wanted to model what Brooklyn Historical Society does. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of people think, and this is what I thought before I started working it, or it's a library, it's like very interior looking, right? It's just, that's it like you go there if you want to do research but they have like they we we <laughs> we have like a lot of programs that are very like um public facing and engaging with i mean all of the kinds of issues that people are dealing with today and so we also wanted to do that connecting the past to the present thing um so i'm going to hand it over to julie to talk about some of the other things that um we kind of um, brainstormed with to come up with Flatbush and Maine, and she can also tell us where we got the title from. Yeah, okay, I'll do that. I got oh, one. Oh, um, I think I would frame Flatbush and Maine in a like a in a larger goal of using our positions at Brooklyn Historical Society and our roles as historians towards the democratization of knowledge and the democratization of the field in which we were trained. So Zaheer and I are both trained historians. I think the sort of stereotype, although hopefully it's changing of academics, is that academics kind of speak to themselves in a room using language that alienates the public. And I think, you know, I'd say we're both pretty committed to doing something very different, to making the really um, complex and salient and relevant arguments of history accessible to a broad audience without dumbing it down in any way. And so I'd say that the podcast is really an, an extension of that. And then towards um, what Zaheer was saying about sort of revealing what we do at Brooklyn Historical Society, I think that the podcast is part of a larger goal of our institution to democratize the archive and to democratize the museum. And these are institutions that have enormous sort of power relations built into them, um, notions of who's welcome at this place and who's not. I mean, I've been a historian for a while now, and I still sometimes go into archives and I'm like, ah. <laughs> they don't want me here, you know? Um, they don't want me touching the stuff. And I think we have a completely different sort of a approach to that um, on the ground at Brooklyn Historical Society, but not everybody can make it there. Um, and so in one sense, part of our, one of our goals is outreach to actually make people so excited about the stuff that they're hearing about that they want to come. And then also making that stuff available to people via the podcast and via the really kind of copious show notes that we create um, related to it so that people who aren't close to Brooklyn um, can come in themselves. And I think it's such a fascinating point what you make in terms of access to podcast via the kind of technology that you have available to you. And one thing that we've been finding um, is that um, by taking a slightly like less serial approach and more creating our episodes as things that can sort of stand on their own today and then maybe in six months as well. We're creating an educational resource that can be used by many, many people 
particularly school teachers, I think, which is an audience we sort of continue to be interested in as an, as an institution. And also, I think we made a sort of a, a concerted decision not to do like a 40-minute conversation, but to actually edit it into a series of more manageable segments, which then I think makes it more accessible to a broad, um, a broad audience. Now, there are drawbacks to that as well, but I, I would say that that was like sort of a very conscious decision that we made. Like, like <laughs> editing is, we believe in editing, right? So, um, so that's just a little bit of context in terms of the decisions that we made behind the podcast. And the name, um, Flatbush in Maine, um, references sort of a street and a concept. So Flatbush is the spine of Brooklyn. It runs from the Manhattan Bridge all the way down to Jamaica Bay and crosses through innumerable and diverse neighborhoods. And then the notion of a main street um, is something that is resonant to people, I would say, across the country. And so we wanted to bring those that hyper-local focus and also that more sort of national focus into the inspiration of our name. What inspired me? Good evening, everyone. I'm Mark, and uh, I am the uh, executive director of the Brooklyn Movement Center. And the Third Rail podcast was the was was started through an affiliate called um, Brooklyn Deep. So the Brooklyn Movement Center is a black-led, multi-issue community organizing group based in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. And those of us who were among those who started, many of us had a, uh, a background in communications and journalism. And so what was sort of baked into the very beginnings of the organization was this idea of, of storytelling and of sort of passing to the mic to, to local people and to tell the, and to do organizing and agitation work um, through that storytelling in addition to the actual you know, face-to-face, door-to-door, um, concrete forms of, of organizing. And so we started with a sort of a broad kind of, a very aggressive kind of communication strategy. And then it, it, it evolved. And, um, I, and I can't take credit for it. A couple of our organizers had, it was a brainchild of a couple of organizers within our organization, one of whom was the communications organizer. And it, um, again, Brooklyn Deep, um, it actually preceded Brooklyn Deep because Brooklyn Deep was a um, something that I had started that was again an extension of our communications, but was a more sort of serious attempt to do investigative journalism and and storytelling that was that st- rather than started from advocacy, really started from a place of inquiry, um, and it was going to be really uh, focused on neighborhood change displacement, otherwise known as gentrification in central Brooklyn. And so the bod- podcast, which had started as Brooklyn Movement Center, kind of got kind of got shoehorned into Brooklyn Deep because that's where it was the most appropriate home for it. Um, and uh, so it has, you know, since we started it, it has, I think we're going on about 30 episodes. We're um, a monthly uh, podcast, although we've, we've paused over the past couple of months and are kind of rethinking what the structure is going to be. But up to now, it has been two of us as, as co-hosts interviewing two people, most of whom are from central Brooklyn, and who are s- somehow involved in some, some form of, of neighborhood or social change. 
And we're having a conversation. It's usually about two different sort of interlocking issues. And again, the focus is supposed to be on community change and, and gentrification, but it really gets uh, interpreted in very liberal ways. So it has, you know, it has spanned from having conversations about black movement history um, and many different conversations about gentrification, about economic development, um, about um, queer and trans movements in central Brooklyn to one that was done a few months ago after the death of Prince and looking at you know, the effect of, of Prince on, on our work and social movements and looking at another episode was on what our, our, our favorite music and what inspired us as organizers. So there, you know, it, it, it essentially is, is trying to um, chronicle not only gentrification but really um, black-led social change work that is rooted in central Brooklyn but try, we try to have a, a national and, and, a, and a universal appeal. Um, I'm not sure what else, I mean, I could, I could go on, but the, the inspiration, again, for me, was as a journalist, was being able to use Brooklyn Deep in a lot of different ways and have a lot of different ways of, of capturing people's attention. And, you know, in fact, we originally as, as aspired to have a, a radio show and then when, the, the, when we actually thought about it and started doing our research and realized how um, <laughs> ridiculous um, the idea of, of, of starting something like that on our, on our budget, um, we went to something like this. And so it's, it's affordable, but, you know, as, as everyone will say, I'm sure as we'll say here, there, uh, if you want to have a good podcast, you have to put a lot of thought into it. And... We are, we are edited as well, so a lot of the magic happens within the, the editing room, and as well as being able to just highlight really important voices. So the last thing I will say is that, you know, the challenge for us has been kind of to bridge, um, you know, to have sort of thought leaders and, and the usual suspects on the show, but also try to be true to this idea of grassroots voices and trying to make it accessible not only for the audience but in terms of the guests as well um, really reinterpreting what it means to have an important voice and have something to say um, for for the public um, thanks so I, I'd like to go back to something that a few of you have already uh, brought up and it's the idea of why you chose podcasting or, or why it sort of became the the format for you and if you think you could do what you're doing with your podcast in like another um, avenue such as radio, for example. Anyone can start. You can talk about that. Um, I mean, for us, it was very simply like, especially, I mean, in, in the States, like we're trying to sort of like um, create content that represents um, like minorities whose lives intersect with sex in some way like sex workers but also trans people and you know like the way that people are sort of represented in these like uh kind of radical ghettos and um like our work just wasn't like public radio just like any public radio outlet i mean like we we sort of i mean like community radio is one thing but people often have to sort of dig to find the content that resonates with them on community radio because like we were talking about this right before like one of the most important aspects of community radio is that the door is open to anyone and um and that 
that makes it so that like some of the like the the um, the experience level of the makers that are producing on community radio is a wide range. Um, so we were striving to get on public radio, and a public radio station in Seattle finally bought our stuff. And at the last minute, they were like, "We can't put it on the air, like because the host is uncomfortable with saying the word smut," you know, and like um, stuff like that, you know. Like so for us, it was very real, sort of like FCC concern where. Um, the storytelling that we were doing, like we didn't want to have to say, we didn't want to have to not say clit, for example. Like we didn't want to have to like obscure um, things that are really important to the storytelling that we're doing, trying to document the private sphere. And um, podcasting doesn't have an FCC, <laughs> not yet. <No>. Anyways, <laughs> um, so that was a big part of it for us. Um, that was, ju it was just a real barrier. Uh, that's, yeah, that's my answer. It's free right now. It's pretty free. The only thing I would add to that too, because like I, I come out of community radio and um, I want to echo what Tennessee said before as being like so crucial that like just the, you know, radio is a medium of access and it's, uh, it, it's been so crucially important for social movements all around the world, like from its birth, um, you know, I mean, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I do believe that community radio first came about um, in uh, in Bolivia and was used by um, the unions uh, who, who were unionizing um, uh, coal miners uh, or just miners in general during the dictatorship there, right? So like from its very inception, it has that social movement connection. And then of course, you know, the history with Pacifica Radio in the US, which, you know, it's contentious because maybe Pacifica is like strayed a little bit away from, but you know, when it started, it was supposed to be, you know, like a, you know, post World War II, like a, a radio network, you know, um, to bring a message of peace into the world. Um, where was I going with that? Yeah, basically, just that I think though that the community radio is really searching for its soul right now in an era where it's really difficult to survive. Um, I can only really talk well about the Canadian context, but uh, if you take a city like. Toronto, um, the biggest city in Canada, it, it's really devastating what's been happening there with community radio. We've seen uh, three community radio stations get shut down just in the last five years. And these were places where um, communities of color, queer folks, disabled folks, you know, you name it, uh, you know, people who didn't otherwise have access to the airwaves were, were coming in to do shows and, and they were getting shut down uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. But like, you know, there, there's, of course, struggles over power, but a, a lot of it just comes down to, like, financial feasibility in an era where it's, like, it's harder to get grants, it's harder to get um, listener support and donations. At my radio station, it's really funny. It's like, you know, um, we're located on the McGill campus, and I would say, you know, basically everyone coming into the station who's under 25 didn't own a radio, right? And it's just like that, it, there's a funny irony there that they don't own radios but they want to come and they want to learn the skills to do radio and and to me podcasting is far from being a perfect medium um but it is something that i think I, I think we'll start to see changes i do agree that it's like for the most part um you know kind of like a white male dominated thing but then you are seeing you know like i mean i can think of like you know like two dope queens or like so many white guys or like you know those shows where it's like i think just with any kind of like new medium there's going to be a period of contestation and 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 i think it's incumbent on 
uh, I'll just speak for myself, people like me to, to fight for, um, to, to open up space so that, um, so that we can hear more voices. I was going to just say that I, <coughs> excuse me, for us, um, I mean, just to pick up on some of that, for us, we, we, we try different things. So Brooklyn Deep not only has a podcast, we, we have a monthly um, a, a television news show. We do, um, I, I can't call it print, it's text because it's all digital, um, and, and really play with a lot of different kind of, of medium. Uh, I, I, at our organization, I'm, I'm the old dude, I mean, by far. Um, and I'm a lover of radio, but I've realized that um, I listen to radio when I'm in my car. Um, and really, that's pretty much it. And when I talk to my colleagues, they don't consume radio that way. Um, most of them are not even driving. And the way they, um, you know, this is going to come as no surprise, they consume it in a very personal way. And so having a podcast was our way to really re pay respect to our demographic. That is, our membership, stubbornly so, is young. It's, um, it's between, you know, the average uh, person there is probably between ages of 25 and, and 35. Um, and so podcasts are a way to, to speak to them in a way that I, quite, quite frankly, other legacy media just can't. Um, even our, our print stuff, our, our, yeah, I, d I just don't think has the same resonance as this does. Yeah, I think to, to add to that, um, to, and what Julie was saying, so our, our podcast, we see each episode as a kind of intellectual project or product. Um, and so the podcast allows time shifting, right? So you can listen to it whenever. You're not captive to when it airs, right? Um, the other thing about our podcast is it allows a kind of um, the kind of editing that is important to us in terms of the kind of historical analysis that we would do, um, both with the interviews, but also uh, the oral histories and the archival documents. And so, like, it's a package, right? Like, it all, it works together. And so, you could just listen to the podcast and you would be cool, you would get it, you would be like, oh, that was interesting. But you might want to look at the letter that we're talking about. You might want to look at the flyer that we're talking about. You might want to listen to the full interview that we've excerpted. And so for us, the podcast allowed for creating a package um, on each topic um, that, that we do. So it gave a kind of um, portability in that way to, to each. We see each, like, you know, like, you know, academics, like, write journal articles or they write books or whatever like we see each issue of the podcast as like our journal article and so like each each month has been like you know like we did um the waterfront we did um queer spaces in brooklyn we did hip-hop in brooklyn we did crown heights this this issue is school segregation in brooklyn and the next issue um, or the next one, see I'm calling it issues, the next month, um, uh, this, at the end of this month, we're gonna do um, one on Shirley Chisholm and, and um, Brooklyn women in politics, right? So each, each, each episode for us is a standalone package that has like all of these other pieces that the podcast just made easier to pull together. Yeah, I think history as a medium is like stubbornly, stereotypically textual, and I think, um, I'm going to speak for us that like uh, our approach 
is um, storytelling, but with analysis as well. And the, that when you do it well, that finding the right balance of that is actually what makes an episode work best. And and so I think um, disseminating to a public that history can be great stories, that it can be fun, that it can be engaging, that it can be surprising, that it can make you think about something in a totally different way. I would say like our first episode was about trash and so many people were like, wow, it's not a title of that. And I was like, what the hell? And then I listened to it and I was like, whoa, you know? And I think if we can get that reaction with it, like every episode that we do, that's a slam, a slam dunk. And then from a museum perspective, I think we think about um, the product, the, the podcast, um, as almost like an intermediary product, if you will. So as an institution, we produce exhibitions and those take like three years, you know? Um, and then we do public programs and those are amazing and they're one-offs like in a night and then on to the next one, you know? And the podcast is this sort of medium in between that where we can do something sort of, um, as Zaheer says, edited, um, thoughtfully produced, um, standalone, something that can persist um, and show that we can do history not just on like a three-year schedule, um, but on a, a monthly schedule. And I think that's just been kind of also kind of it's kind of nice for a historian to not have to work for a decade on something and then and then put it out. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you specifically, like with silent evidence, like reveal being both hmm. the radio because we worked no on ours together, but there was. Um, there was a, a fifth part that went out on a like a big show that that's a podcast and a radio show, like. Um. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll like work that into the end of what I was gonna say. Which I mean, I know I poo pooed podcast in the beginning, and now I'm gonna. <laughs> but I think it's like I also am really into sort of taking like a strength based approach, and so then I was like, well, what's really awesome about podcasts? And I think that what the technology offers and the way that podcasts are often consumed so intimately with earbuds um, that was really important to me um, and is definitely one of the reasons that when when my radio mom Karen was like Caitlin it sealed the deal and and the point is that I wanted to push the narrative and I wanted to push it in terms of content and form um, the survivor narrative has been very one channel and it's been very, it's sort of told the same way over and over again. And the complexity and the nuance of that experience um, is I don't see rendered that often. And it's oftentimes about breaking silence and making noise and it's not about a politics of listening. And so to be able to work with somebody who can compose really beautiful art um, and use the left channel and the right channel and have all these layers going, which if you were like blasting down the road in your old Volvo and listening to the radio, you wouldn't get it, right? So in your headphones, in your earbuds, the ability to have multiple layers, to actually hear complexity, not just in terms of like, this is a new radical idea about being a woman who's survived abuse, but like it sounds radical too. And you're forced to engage with the complexity and the nuance and, and how you do that. And so, you know, if I'm gonna like swing to the other side and be a champion of podcasts, I think that's what it has to offer. And I think it's really important to maximize that. Um, which, you know, like I, I really feel like the heart is a shining example of, of trying to do that, so. 
And Tennessee, you also um, you mentioned earlier that the audience for podcasts is still most is mostly white and male. So um, building on that, I'd like to ask all of you what you see as sort of the limits of podcasting as a tool for uh, political activism. I mean, I just don't like I computers, iPods. Like you gotta download it, and I, I just I, I guess. I'm not totally clear on what the you know the numbers are, but the Center for Public Integrity did a pretty amazing investigation in terms of access to the internet in the United States. And when you look at that map, um, there are a lot of people who can could not access silent the silent evidence mini season. Um, and I just you know became acutely aware of this because I moved to one of those counties, that sort of hot pink county on the map. I moved to Okanagan County in Washington State. I was trying to finish a podcast without the internet. And I was like, whoa, this is a real thing. Like, what a <laughs> dummy that I didn't get, like, the digital divide. So just, I'm, you know, trying to figure out how to transcend that and, you know, fight for radio, fight for these things to be on radio, but also sort of um, demand that people have access to this this public service, I mean, that feels that feels like important, um, and it feels like a crusade that podcasters should be involved in taking up. I just hold it here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, a lot of times when people talk about podcasts, they talk about like intimacy, so that really like uh, intimate listening experience. And it's really cool because, I mean, I've listened to, like, I think all of your podcasts. And, like, before coming here, I, I felt like I kind of knew you guys all in a way. And um, y'all do amazing podcasts. So it's, it's really an honor to be um, sharing the, the floor with you. Um, but I think what podcasts lack, though, is um, a kind of immediacy, right? And, and I would say, like, like actually, a, a, on a technical level, podcasts are, are more difficult to produce than traditional live radio because they involve editing. And now sometimes that can be great because you can edit out all like the stupid parts of your interview or whatever. But, um, but you know, sometimes it's 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 really amazing again to have that that radio space where people can come in and and just do the show and get it done and then it's out there. You know, I was doing that for a long time and um, I was doing my show, The Rebel Beat, as, as a live radio show and then I, I switched over. It's a recorded podcast now and I find it much more difficult. Mostly, it's also like in the delivery too. Like when I go into the radio studio, I don't really think about what I'm saying. I just say it and then boom, it's out there. And now I second guess myself and I, I re-record my, my script a gajillion times. Um, but... Yeah, so I mean, I think there's like a certain live quality that that gets lost, and um, but again, like I'm gonna come back to like like what I think is really exciting about podcasts right now is that like with new technologies, I think you know they they come into like you know popular culture and then and then people play around with them and and try to democratize them, and I do see that happening with, with podcasts where um, there there will be a push to to make the tools um, available to, to to you know wider audiences and wider groups of people and hopefully have more producers out there now that could end up in like more saturation so at a certain point it's like oh yeah oh i got a podcast I got... like how many people in this room do podcasts does anyone else here do? 
Oh, man. Okay, maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> I was expecting, I was expecting like half the people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, who's the DJ? I'm a DJ. How many people are, how many people are thinking about doing podcasts? Oh, awesome. yeah. So, so, you know, and then we see tools like, I don't know, Audacity, right, is such an amazing tool in the sense that it's just an open source, free tool that people can use to do audio editing. And, and hopefully we'll see an advent of more of those tools for, for podcasting as well. Um, I think, uh, so a couple of things. Um, one of the, um, it's kind of like trying to balance though, the live and the editing. Um, I think the challenge is to try to sound a, as live as possible. Um, <laughs> but one of the challenges about the podcast has to do with the length of podcasts. Um, and we had this whole discussion about like wanting to make sure our podcasts were not too long um, because it does limit your audience, I think, if if you if it's too long. I think the segments have helped that. But, you know, it's it's easier to do video just in terms of like social media, right? So sharing your podcast on social media is very difficult. The best you could do is share a link, right? And and you know, unless you produce a clip that makes it shareable. Um, and so which is labor. And so, you know, I don't know if people are familiar with WNYC developed or um, Audiogram, which is like an open source thing to create like these, these like short, shareable, like it, you, you create the backdrop and you have like a little wave that wiggles while it plays the clip. And we actually just started experimenting with that. So this way you can like choose excerpts um, and, and make those excerpts shareable, right, for people. And then say like, and then you can give the link to the full podcast. But I think, so one of the challenges is um, getting the podcast out there, right? Because there's so many, I mean, he's right. Like, um, there's, it's like a hundred trees falling in the forest. How are people gonna hear your tree, right? <laughs> and so like, you have to find ways to distinguish um, your podcast and get it get it circulating and and so the challenge with that is that the the way social media is designed now is a very visual um, you know images would get circulated videos would get circulated just straight up audio is not going to get circulated right and like SoundCloud just disable their um, Facebook embedding thing so if you embed a SoundCloud clip in Facebook you have to go go to SoundCloud. It used to be you could listen in Facebook, right? Um, and then, you know, even with Twitter, like, do you embed like a 30 minute SoundCloud in Twitter? Because, you know, people are like going like this. They're like going through their Twitter stream. So that's why I like finding the shorter clips. So we, when we do our podcast, we always are thinking of, um, you know, even sometimes while we're doing the interviews, but certainly during the editing, like what's the pull quotes? And again, this is thinking of like the text, like if you're doing a long form article, what are you gonna, what are your pull quotes gonna be? Mm -hmm. So we're always thinking about in the audio, like what's a good excerpt to pull? Like what's a really nice clip um, that could be a teaser, that could be circulated, that could like provoke people to want to get this context and listen to more. So those are some of the ways we've been trying to contend with the, the challenges of like sharing or getting your podcast out there. I mean, short, 
just to echo sort of what you're saying, um, I think that there was this like this moment um, when things went digital where we thought that we were in this like new land where all of the that we could somehow shed the power structures and the preju prejudices that existed before the digital revolution and what I've really noticed and experienced firsthand is that like you know I still have to romance the power structure to get an audience, <laughs> you know? And that's complicated because, like, we've had to change the language that we use in the show that we make. We've had to change, we've had to strip away the word, like, we've actually took taken the word feminist out of the description of the show. I know, oh, I love that, <laughs> I love it, oh my god, I love that gas, but I, but, uh, I do, I do, but, but I mean, because, because, um, because public radio still, I mean, like there are alternative power structures that sort of like support and support, um, you know, that, that build audiences and sort of like networks across. I mean, when thinking about Canada, like the community, the National Community Radio Association, you know, like um, networks of, uh, you know, activists and, and people who support each other that are like outside of sort of like the mainstream delivery method. But like f for a lot of people, the mainstream delivery method is what they go to you know like people don't like regular ass people don't go searching for like alternative media to consume they watch netflix you know like and and those regular ass people are the people that i want to i want to reach those people and um and i still i feel like even though we're in sort of like this democratization of media moment like the 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 same people who had power before when only some people could be on the radio still have power in the podcasting universe. I have to say though that the heart is under health in iTunes and the first email I got very enthusiastic was from the director of cardiology at a hospital in Cincinnati and he was like holy shit I did not see that coming but he loved Silent evidence. <laughs> so, like, we got one regular ass dude. Um, I, I apologize. I know it's, it's, it's mad rude to, to be the last one to, to get here and probably the first one to leave. But I'm, I'm going to have to do just that. I've, I owe something to my son, so I'm going to take him out in a minute. Um, but the, I guess the last thing I wanted to say was... Um, for us, it's one of these things where podcasting can be this very uh, powerful democratizing force. And yet you find yourself still fighting the same um, battles in terms of big media and being outgunned in terms of promotion and having a particular platform. You know, if you're, if you're serial, you know, you get promoted on WNYC and public radio and um, we just can't compete with that. So, you know, what you always do is run the risk of becoming, you know, the audio version of Wayne's World. You know, <laughs> some dudes in the basement with their T-shirt on, you know, having a conversation with themselves. Um, so we don't want to do that. Um, and um, it, 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 it sometimes, it's easy, it seems like it's easy to slip into that, to become really kind of just like another bourgeois medium, right, of that... We are a black-led, low- and moderate-income-serving organizing group. And so at the end of the day, if there are a group of hipsters in Bushwick who are listening to our shit, you know, that's not good enough for us. Um, and so how do, you, how do you market, how do you promote 
um, a podcast, one that speaks universally, but also very locally in, in a very strategic way. And so that will always be the struggle for us. And when you don't have the, um, the privilege or the, or, the, or the power of the mass airwaves, it's really a struggle to find the audience and find, and find your audience, um, again, in a very strategic way. So with that, I'm going to drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Okay, I think maybe I'll just ask one uh, final question of all of you. Um, what is it that you'd like to see in podcasting that you're not seeing right now? I, I, know, I know. I know what I want. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, I think that the network, like, the podcast network has actually really done a lot for us. Like, before we were on the network, we had about 5,000 listeners per episode, which was really great. Um, I attribute that to being in New York and, like, being part of the public radio scene, which is, like, actually a pretty supportive community of, like, total nerds um, who are get excited about a new thing um, that their friend made or whatever. But... Um, once we got on a network, our, our audience grew immensely, and that meant that we could monetize what we were doing and actually start paying ourselves for the work that we're doing. And um, uh, it would be so great if there was just a, a greater diversity of networks. Like networks, like I would love it, you know, like I like the network, like I said, you know, like the network that we're on, like it's really great to be right beside like Roman Mars, who makes 99% Invisible, who is like, you know, like as normal as you can get, like, um, and it's great that maybe some normal ass dudes from from his audience are gonna like stumble upon our like radical feminist shit. Um, that's awesome, but it would be so great if we could like work on a network of people who actually support what we do and know how to market it. You know, like it would be so cool if there was, you know, like a network of like. Yeah, like, like, but also not, not, I mean, I think that, like, it's, it's, there is a challenge, I think, like, for, again, like, trying to sort of, like, reach out to, and I mean, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stick with the five-minute thing, but I think for us, like, there was a moment where we, there was a fork in the road where it's, like, do we want to, like, um, help motivate and inspire people in our community who have our politics, or do we want to try to, like, open the hearts and minds of people who don't have our politics, and we took we went that way, and that's a choice we made, and I totally recognize the legitimacy of the other path, you know, especially as somebody who, like, feels my heart lift up when I see things that reflect my politics. Um, but, and maybe that was the wrong choice. I don't know. Still figuring it out. But, like, um, I'm kind of going on a big, long tangent, but, the, like, just seeing, like, being able to work being able to, like, imagining networks that, um, yeah, that are just more diverse, like, imagining sort of, like, working on a network that's really badass and actually legitimately cool, um, that, like, makes media that everybody wants to consume, um, and that isn't, they're not just consuming it because it reflects their politics, but because it's really great storytelling, um, and it's really artfully made, but it's made by queers and trans people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that would be so cool. <laughs> I have a very unphilosophical question, uh, answer to that, and I wish that Apple didn't hold a near monopoly of um, every aspect of podcasting in, in terms of access, in terms of rating, in terms of description. I think it relates 
exactly back to the questions that we've been having about outreach and marketing, it's very, very difficult to get data on who is listening to you, how many people are listening to you, how many people are downloading you on iTunes. Um, we've been really conscious to get as many platforms having our podcast as possible, but Apple still continues to be sort of the go-to place where people listen to podcasts, so um, I wish that didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't want to be like the token Canadian on the panel. Well, no, we're, 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 yes. Yeah, okay, but like what I was going to say is like so Canadian. But, uh, not that like there should be more Canadian content, but no, but what I wanted to say is um, I, like just, you know, coming. <laughs> Coming, uh, you know, from the the political context where I live, I would I would love to hear more indigenous voices uh, in podcasts. And you know, I got to give a shout out to like one of my favorite podcasts is is called Red Man Laughing. Uh, you know, Caitlin brought up networks. There's actually um, an indigenous podcasting network that exists now. It's called Indian and Cowboy. People can check it out as IndianCowboy.com. Uh, you know, they're building on. Um, you know, indigenous storytelling and oral history traditions that are already like, you know, been part of the fabric of indigenous nations for thousands of years and taking into podcasting format. So, so that's amazing. Uh, the thing is, you know, they need support um, because they're, they're working on uh, very few means. Um, but like, I mean, it's just, it's such an exciting context right now. Like, do, do people here know the group A Tribe Called Red? Yeah. yeah, like they, they just dropped this album, which for me is so mind blowing. Like it actually, I, I was thinking about it, it actually kind of like marks a point where it's like, I think that music changed the day after that album came out. Like it's, you know, and, I, and it's the context too. It came out in like the context of like the amazing resistance that's happening in North Dakota right now with the Standing Rock. And like, you know, in Canada, there's a commission starting about like this, you know, horrible problem we have of missing and murdered indigenous women. And, and, and the album is like grappling with all of that in, in the most like inspiring, like badass, like heavy beats kind of way. Um, and, and, and for me, so it's, it's just really kind of setting a context in terms of what I aspire to do, which is just kind of tap in to this, this energy of like, you know, um, voices that refuse to be colonized uh, and that are that are creating like such an amazing uh, cultural and political space for themselves. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on donate. From all of us at Audio Interference. Thanks for listening.